You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Makisha Madden Toby. Makisha is a TV critic, editor, and entertainment journalist who has written for such outlets as Essence, The Los Angeles Times, CNN.com, and Shondaland.com. A Detroit native, Makisha discovered her love for books and words early. In the fifth grade, she even started her own magazine. At that time, she didn't know that what she was doing was actually called journalism, but she did know that she enjoyed it. By high school, however, not only did she know that she wanted to go to college for journalism, but she also had mentors in the business who helped her see that this was a viable career. Makisha decided to attend Wayne State University, and after an internship at a newspaper, she had found her tribe. After graduation, she took a job in Seattle and also discovered her love for stand-up comedy. And this is where we wrapped part one of her story. So without further ado, please take a listen. Makisha, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I can't complain, Delisha. Thank you so much for having me on. This is great. Thanks for being on. Uh, I've been told by DeMarcus that this is going to be a great conversation. I think so, too. So let's jump right into it. Who is Makisha Madden-Toby? I'm a Detroiter, born and raised, and I'm a wife, and I'm a mother, and I'm a daughter, and I uh, have lived in Los Angeles for 13 years. No, actually, it'll, it was 15 years. It'll be 15 years in this, this fall. Um, and so I am a transplant, but LA is our home now. And it's where our children have been born. We have little beach kids. <laughs> we took them back to Detroit. And my oldest daughter was like, where's the beach? And we were just like, that's, this is Detroit. It's landlocked. Um, but we took, her to, <laughs> we took her to the water. Um, they have lots of lakes and rivers. And so it's just awesome just being in this time right now. And covering television is what I do for a living. But I, I feel like my job has always been to tell stories and to communicate and to, you know, shine a spotlight on Black people who have stories that deserve to be told. I just had the honor and privilege of interviewing John Amos, who is 82 years young. Wow. It was so moving, Delisha. By the end of the interview, I was like in tears. I was just like so happy and so honored and proud to be able to be in that moment because I'm a big component of giving people their flowers now. Give them their flowers why they can get the flowers and smell the flowers and not all this, you know, beautiful tributes, mind you, but tributes after they're gone, you know, which happened with Cicely Tyson, which happened with Sidney Poitier, unfortunately. And, um, I, you know, I often wonder, like, why more people did not talk to Sidney Poitier in, before it was too late. And I um, had a wonderful opportunity to interview Cicely Tyson probably about, uh, sadly, about six months before she passed away. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I, I say, I like to say we need to um, never forget who came before us, how we got to where we are, and then never forget who comes behind us. Um, but also there's that middle, right? Like we, we should um, help out people who are our own age. I remember that was one of the, the most powerful sermons I've ever heard at the church is that you need three sets of friends. You need friends who are your age, you need friends who are older than you, and you need friends that are younger than you. And I feel like that's the same approach everybody should take when trying to get to know people and understand better who they are is to talk to people your age, talk to people who are older than you who've done it and been there and done it. And then talk to people who are younger than you so you can help them get there too. So um, that's who I am. <laughs> I'm a communicator, 
and I am a storyteller. I can tell already for sure <laughs> that you're a communicator and a storyteller. Um, and, you know, given how journalism and sort of the, the, that industry has changed and evolved uh, in the digital age, at some point, I do want to have that conversation of, about why you stuck with it through all of the iterations. <laughs> um, and so we'll put a pin in that for now. I do find it fascinating that you're a Detroiter who's been living in LA uh, yeah. for so long because it's just two very different cultures. So um, very different. And, 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 and weirdly enough, the same, that car culture part of it was, yes. was right. So jarring for me because Los Angeles, there's so much sprawl and you have to drive everywhere. I was like, it's like being in Detroit all over again. <laughs> very <laughs> Way true. Way worse traffic though. Way worse very traffic. true. But the, I can say that the, t- the tie that has seemed to bind every person I've ever met from Detroit is the level of grit and hustle that they have. Right. Right. Like it's, it is some, I mean, that whole Detroit versus everybody, like it's funny, but at the same time, like I have never <laughs> met a person from Detroit who does not have a certain level of hustle and yeah. aggression about them in a good right. way. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about what it was like for you growing up in the Midwest. That's a great question. I think that it does make you stronger, but it also sort of makes you more tenacious. And you're always constantly looking at every angle and how can I be doing this and how could I do this better? You know, um, I know we're going to put a pin in the conversation about why I stayed in journalism so long, but I think that that's part of it too, right? That being from Detroit, there's a stick to it to miss, if that's even a a real phrase, but just a desire to never say die and never give up and never like just throwing a towel too soon. I've left jobs, (laughs) but I've not left the industry. And I feel like I've thought about it. Um, But I think that 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 part of me that that loves to hustle, that loves to write, that loves to tell stories, that loves to talk to people won't die. It just is it's ingrained in me now. Um, And I I attribute that a lot to my mom, who was an English teacher. That's telling the records. My mom was an English teacher and my dad was a hustler, like constantly. He was like, oh, I work in construction, but I also do lawns. But I also, <laughs> I will pick up, you know, he, he was, he was task rabbit before there was task rabbit. <laughs> Daddy he had his own gig economy. He had his own gig economy. But I know a large part, he, he started off selling insurance. And when the industry became too much for him in terms of being able to be there for us, I know when he took on a lot of these other like side jobs and hustles, it also allowed him to have more time to take me to school and have these conversations and, you know, take my sister's school and pick us up from school and be invested in our lives. Not in just like, I'm your dad and, you know, I'm here, but when he was there. And I think seeing that for me always struck a chord. So then even when I left jobs that I wasn't newsrooms, I wasn't happy in, I freelanced and I, I sort of uh, apply that same acumen, like, okay, this is the situation that it is right now. I will freelance for five outlets if I have to. I'll be a contract here. I'll be on contract at one place and and write, you know, whatever, wherever else. But it allowed me to spend time with my children. So I think that that those are the things that you don't ever lose sight of. And I know that's 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 Detroit, right? That's like what? OK, this is what the situation is. You make the best of the situation and use what you have and um, and never give up. That's it's in me. And that's part of why I've I've stayed in this industry for ooh, 22, 23 years. I've been a journalist. So. Um, you know, I've written for Playboy.com. I've written for People. I've written for um, the LA Times. I've <laughs> I wrote for Essence for six years. Uh, I was at Variety. I was at the Detroit News. And and the 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 crazy part is, I think back at it. My husband got a job here in Los Angeles uh, at Yahoo Sports, where he still is. 
Um, and I took my job with me from the Detroit News here. I covered, actually, <laughs> I covered TV for the Detroit News in LA longer than I was doing it in Detroit. Um, but newspapers aren't sadly very viable anymore. Right. And they don't invest in their personnel the way they used to. And the desire to sort of have people who are experienced on staff was not as important as having a lot of people they could pay a little bit of money. So, it, you know, it is, it is what it is. And that's when I went, I, in, in 2012, I made the transition from newspapers to digital and I never looked back. So when did you first really discover that you had the ability to tell a story and communicate in a way that impacted people? I think it was like, um, I was telling somebody, I, in fifth grade, I started my own magazine. Mm. <laughs> and I had... I had a, a a newsroom that I paid in candy, like basically my little my little staff. <laughs> we didn't. This is like you know I'm dating myself, but this is when the, the the high tech of it all was there was no internet and we had copy machines. That was, that was, oh that was, my gosh, that was the high tech. And so I had a an illustrator, a guy who could draw. He would draw like the the, the stuff for my stories, and <laughs> and then we would like write the little text, and I would type it up, and then we would sell it to people in the classroom, you know, we, we did, we did okay. But, um, the thing that I remember thinking about or realizing, not even knowing that what I, what it was called, I know it was called journalism. I just knew I liked how it felt to tell those stories and more importantly, to interview people. Like when I interview people, it's not me, it's like, you know, me 2.0. And so even then I was like, you know, suddenly people who I would never have talked to was like, I was like, hello, we're doing a survey. (laughs) What is your favorite lunch taco or pizza. And like, people were like, oh, they had opinions, you know? And I was like, this is fantastic. And I didn't know that was called journalism. I mean, it's, it's funny. I always tell people pay attention to what your kids are tuning into or feel good when they do, because that's probably what they're going to grow up to be. Mm-hmm. And that's how I, it, you know, like I said, I didn't know it was called journalism until high school. And I realized I could get a scholarship in it. And I was like, really? <laughs> Tell me more about journalism. But back then, you know, you're just having fun with your friends and taking surveys and and starting to realize what you like about um, yourself and other people. And I, I love asking people questions and helping, you know, hopefully helping them to understand something, but even understanding them better and myself at the same time. Did you ever have thought, I mean, you mentioned your your father and what he sort of instilled in you from a, a hustle perspective. But did you ever have thought about how much money can I really make? in this industry? Or were you just like, this is what I'm passionate about. Not only am I passionate about it, but someone might pay for me to go to school to study this. Was that mm-hmm. it? Or did you ever have those thoughts? And I asked that question because often when you, in the black community, when you have family that's reached a level of financial security, right. And mm-hmm. they're doing what they can to sustain economically. There's often an encouragement on the kids to do better. Right. And choose right. careers that will ensure that they can do better. Did you feel any any pressure in that or even consider the financial component going into journalism? I did, but it was funny that you said that, Delisha, because I remember, I think it was, I was probably a junior going into senior year. And my dad was like, so where, you know, where are you thinking about college wise and stuff? Because my dad didn't go to college, you know, and my mom did. And so, you know, for him, it was like, OK, if you go to college, you should be a teacher like her. You know, mm-hmm. like that was just the natural. That's what he knew. Um because we didn't have a lot of people who were college educated around us, per se, aside from my mom's teacher friends and, you know, other educators and stuff. So he was like, oh, you're going to go to college. You're just going to be a teacher. Right. And I was like, no, <laughs> teacher. I mean, I love my mom and I, I admired her. She was an amazing English teacher and all the books that I love, my love for Toni Morrison, my love for, you know, even to some extent, Terry McMillan, 
you name it. I oh, Alice Walker, all of that stuff is that my you know books that my mom exposed me to. We had a huge library in the basement, like because my mom would bring all the books home that she taught to her students, and so I would just read it. You know, I was reading like you know um, Catcher in the Rye and and The Stranger and stuff. You know, even before it was assigned in school. So I understood why he said that. But at the same time, I was like, but I don't want to do that. I'm going to get a scholarship and go to college for journalism. He was like, journalism? I don't know about that. (laughs) He didn't know any journalists. But I think for me, I was just like, I know the the beauty of of the journalism program that we had at high school was that we were actually like get to meet real black journalists who were doing it every day. And I would look at their lives like one of my mentors, Cassandra Spratling, who was at the Free Press, was like, you know, this she had a beautiful home and she had two kids and her husband is, you know, a professional, uh, I think he was an engineering. Um, and I was like, it's, it is plausible. You can do this. I don't know if I'm going to be rich, but I'm going to be financially secure, mm-hmm. um, based on my skill set, And that was exciting enough to me to be like, to believe that it would work out. Um, it was a risk, but I think overall it has paid off. And interestingly enough though, my husband has, you know, excel just immensely in his position as an editor. And so the money digital on the digital side of media, the money is in editing. That's why Mm. I'm an editor now, you know, I'm a staff editor. So you have to, what I've learned over time is that you have to keep evolving and keep bettering yourself and and having a skill set. You can't just be like, well, I'm a writer or I'm a critic. It's like, that's nice. (laughs) Welcome to freelance. So if you really want to stay secure or to make sure at least that you are more marketable um, as as a person in this field, it does truly help to have an expansion of skills and be able to say, okay, I can write headlines and I can do cut lines and I can edit stories and I can, you know, do, I can cut photos. Like, this is what we do. This is how Mm -hmm. we do it every day. And, you know, I've been places where it was wonderful that we had like a photo editor or we had a copy desk person and stuff like that. But more often than not, as these companies get leaner and meaner, they eliminate all of that. And so as a, as a journalist writing a story, you're doing, you're doing everything. <laughs> There's somebody who looks at it, but they're overall, you're the one responsible for the photos. You're the one responsible for the headline. Yesterday I was writing my John Amos story, which is doing really well today, by the way, thank God. Mm-hmm. And um, it was my last story for Black History Month. And, you know, I'm sitting there like <laughs> on Everett Collection. I don't know if you've ever heard of Everett Collection, but it's like an alternative to the Associated Press photos. Mm-hmm. They have old photos of everything. So they had like stuff from Good Times. They had stuff from Roots. You know, Warner Brothers, who set up the interview with me with John Amos, they had stuff from Roots. But it was just like, I was, I spent at least an hour combing just through photos. Wow. Of John, yeah, you know what I mean? Instead of like, I just want to write this story. I need to transcribe the interview. No, it's like, okay, write the headline, grab some photos. Then you transcribe. Then you put it all together and try to make it make sense in about a thousand words, you know? <laughs> it's like, ah, but it worked out. But it also speaks to the fact that you actually have passion for this, right? Mm-hmm. Because people often get into to a career thinking it's going to be one thing. And if it's not exactly that, they're like, this is not what I signed up for. That's so true. So, you know, it, it's one thing to have an interest in something and be talented in it. And it's another thing to be purposed to do it. Mm-hmm. Because when you're purposed to do it, I find that you find a way to I make like it that. work despite the difficulties and the obstacles. Which yeah, it sounds I, like that's what you have done. I 100% agree. It's funny because when I was at the Detroit News, um, and I loved it there, don't get me wrong, because it's my hometown paper. Um, one of the things that I think really benefited me was freelancing while I was there because it gave me the opportunity to write for different outlets, keep my name out there in a national sense, not just locally. Never think just, local is good. 
but you want everybody to know what you can do. It doesn't really behoove you or anyone if you're just like doing your local paper and nobody knows who you are. Now, granted, a lot of the stories that we did, because at the time the Detroit News was owned by Gannett, a lot of the stories I would do would go on the wire anyway. But it just helped. It really helped to at the time, you know, Us Weekly, People Magazine, different outlets would say, well, we don't have a correspondent. Or we don't have any people in 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 Detroit because people were interested in Eminem or at the time, like I think Renee Zellweger was dating uh, Jack White or some randomness. And then they would be like, can you go and see, you know, or every now and again, they would shoot a movie in Detroit or whatever. And they would want to know, you know, it's silly stuff, but it's, it also was just really good to just have that a diversification of skills. And it's also for national magazines to know who you are. Um, and I know that helped me when I started writing for Essence as well, you know, just, oh, okay, she can do this. Oh, she's based in LA. We only have one other person in LA. Can we, you know, can you go to this, this junket? Can you go to this red carpet? Can you go interview uh, Kevin Hart on his new set, the set of his new movie. And I'm like, yes, yes, all of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all while working at the Detroit News. And then when the Detroit News ended and I, you know, like I said, I made the transition to digital. I still had those contacts. I still, they, they still knew who I was. So it's one door closes. You always have that window mm-hmm. <laughs> that's always open. And you're like, but there's a window and I'm fine. You know, but so, you're right. it, it, if, if it's your purpose, you figure out a way. Absolutely. And you know, I, I have, friends and associates and colleagues from pretty much, you know, almost every major city. And out of my entire community or circle, my friends from Detroit, all of them stayed in, De- in Michigan for school. Like uh, every last one of them went to school in Michigan, which I find incredibly like an interesting phenomenon. Right. So you went to Wayne State. I went to Wayne State. That's what I'm like. She's right. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you. Michigan State. Yeah. What's the driver? Right. Is it in-state tuition? Is it that do they give the most scholarships to? Is it wanting to have that connection to home? But I find that that's a cultural phenomenon that I see the most with people who are from Detroit. That is a really good observation. I never thought about it. It's funny because we just hung out with some friends last weekend for President's Day weekend. And they both went to Michigan. All, all of them went to Michigan State except me. I went to Wednesday. And then um, Omari, the husband, he went to Harvard for grad school. Poor him, right? And then <laughs> the, the wife went to Michigan. But you're right. It's just sort of one of those things that it just makes sense. And you know who you're, you have that home base. It's kind of like the advantage, you know, home field advantage of knowing, okay, I know where everything is. I know where to get good barbecue. I know where I can get my hair done. I know where I can go buy some jeans in like 10 minutes. And I think that that's something I probably took for granted um, being at home and, you know, living at home for the first couple of years and then getting my own place. But all of those things, I think, helped to build the basis and the structure for who I was to become. But I think for me, after I graduated from college, I couldn't get out of Detroit fast enough, to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't feel bad about that, but I do wish that uh, I'm glad I did it. But for other people who maybe want to stay there and continue to have that home base, because there are advantages when you start to have children, you get married and have kids. You can take the child to grandma's house if there's a grandma's house to go to right. if you still live in the city. So I do. I, that is probably my one regret. I wish my mom lived here. Um, my dad, unfortunately, passed away a while ago. But, you know, my mom, it would be great to have her around. And I do notice for friends who I, who I have who are still in Detroit, they have that. So that is that is enviable. But also it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's cheaper to go to school. It's the, the, the cost of living is cheaper. You know, you're right. The, the in-state tuition advantage, but also those are good schools. I mean, for if you want to go into journalism, Michigan State and Wayne State are great journalism schools mm-hmm. because you have professionals who are still actively in journalism teaching. Um, 
so I mean, I didn't know that going on. Like at the time, I was just happy to get the scholarship. But <laughs> once I got there, I was so impressed by the fact that we to stay in the scholarship to in program, we had to have an internship every semester. Mm. That really, really benefited me because it helped me to fit, you know figure out really quickly what I wanted to do. I, I did a radio internship. I did some PR internships. You know, um, I only did paid internships. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I don't believe in unpaid internships. I think that's great. Right. But I think all of those things sort of helped me understand and figure out, okay, this is what I'm good at. And this is what, this is the environment I can strive in. And this is the type of communicator I am. And um, I really just liked writing, you know? And so I think that that's, you know, and I had other friends who left journalism completely. One woman I knew who was in a journalism program with us (laughs) ended up becoming a pediatrician, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but her undergrad was paid for. Um, So, you know, I, I think it's, it's just, everybody's different. But I definitely think the people who are from Detroit, who stay in state, even if they don't stay in Detroit, but they go to, like you said, East Lansing or Ann Arbor for Michigan or East Lansing for, for Michigan State. It's still sort of like, you know, because my husband grew up in Lansing. So, again, Michigan State was down the street. <laughs> no brainer for him. Um, but it's, it's, it is. It is definitely an advantage and definitely something I think people who do decide because everybody does. And I know some people who went to. Uh, who grew up with me, who went to, you know, HBCUs in, in Atlanta and stuff like that. But not, you're right. The percentage, mm-hmm. if you were to do a comparison, it's much more people who stay, who stay in, who stay in Michigan to go to school once it is, It is quite the phenomenon, I must say. And we won't even get into the rivalry from the, the Michigan schools either. Oh my God. <laughs> we'll leave that for another day. Um, but you touched on doing these internships and figuring out, okay, this is what I want to do. Can you delve into that a little bit more, like what that looked like for you for it to really crystallize to say, this is the kind of journalist I want to be and these are the areas that I want to cover? That's a great question. I think for me, it was funny. The first internship I had in college was radio. And I remember it being completely insane when the OJ verdict, that was my freshman year when the OJ verdict came out. Mm. And I remember being in the newsroom and they were like all these white male editors. And I was just like, it's just a sponge, just watching it, watching the whole thing unfold, all the coded wording, all of the frustration, you know, <laughs> bless her heart. This one woman, black woman, she was biracial. She, she leaned way into the militancy and was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, these are two extreme examples of not, <laughs> I don't want to be either one of these people or any, I don't want to fall into any one, either one of these camps of people who are like white and angry and like, mm. And then this black woman was like, we just went a lot of, I know, sis, please calm down. But <laughs> for me, being in that newsroom and just watching how they all responded, but ultimately, regardless, each on each side of the camp, on each camp, ultimately had to put it in the middle and tell the story. It doesn't really matter. And I bias still seeped in, but I still thought it was very admirable overall, considering I could tell what the people who were doing the story really thought how most of the coverage was middle of the road. So I think that that's when you, even though I didn't decide to go into radio, because I, I mean, I, I have a podcast too, but so I like the audio side of things or the oral side of things, but I just, um, I don't know. I, I was like, okay, that's cool, but I want to write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can only write so much for radio because you're doing like 30 minute, one minute at the most, I think what, two thirty, two 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 minutes and 30 second stories. So you, it just was, it was too brief for me. And I just thought, okay, I want to, I want to play with language. I love words too much for this. This is cool. And it sounds cool. And I, I liked that part of it. I think that's why I, when I got a podcast, I was like, okay, that's, I can explore that side of myself, but on a day to day, the writing was just, it took um, precedence. And then my next internship after that, that summer was at a newspaper. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. 
<laughs> like this is this is my people. These weirdos make me feel less weird. <laughs> I fit in here. I like this. So I think that's when you just sort of you find your you know you find your tribe. And you know since you brought up this sort of juxtaposition of two extremes, you know in the in the in the room when the verdict was read, thinking about uh, race and mm. racial issues and how they're covered by mainstream media. Did you ever have sort of an internal dialogue of like, I want to work for a black focused publication? Was that ever on the table for you? I know you've done work with Essence and all of that, but at the time, thinking about your career, was there ever an intentional sort of thought about what lane you wanted to be in with respect to like race, you know, race centric publication, you know, black owned or just gone more mainstream? I did. And it's funny, I've, I just had this conversation with my husband yesterday because I feel like sometimes, unfortunately, as much as I love my job, I still have to be more often than not, I have to be a black expert mm. and be the voice of black people. Um, you know, <laughs> covering John Amos was a no brainer, even though um, my editor initially was like, but OK, I rewind a little bit. When we decided to cover, when they decided to cover Black History Month, uh, I've only been there for a year. So the first year, my first year, this is after the racial reckoning. You have to always keep that in mind mm-hmm. when jobs happen and how they happen. I, at least I know I do. Um, it was like, oh, hey, welcome as me and one other Black woman on staff. This is the first two Black people they've had at this publication. This publication has only been around for 10 years. Um, I work at TVLine.com, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> they've never had any Black people on staff until the two of us came. And so, red flag, right? Like, okay, that's fine. We're going to come. We're going to pioneer. Pioneering is not easy, but it's necessary. Somebody's going to do it. Let's go. So we go in. Second month there. Hello. It's Black History Month. What do you have for us? And we're like, oh, uh, OK. Yeah, let's go. You know, not even you know what? Not even two months into it, it was like three weeks, two weeks in. It was like we need to get something. <laughs> we're like, ah. um, we came up with a great package. It did phenomenally well because we got a really good sponsor to pay for everything. That's always good. And um, so then they saw the commercial and 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 monetary benefit mm. of being inclusive, right? And suddenly it's like, oh my god, like we're so smart. We hired these two black women, okay? But <laughs> that's that's a lot for two black women to carry. So my thing at the end of it was like, hey, it turned out well. Everybody, you know, we're getting a lot of attention and and praise, and that's awesome. Next year, we are not the two of us are not if we're still here. We're not carrying all of this black coverage. You are going to have some of these white people are going to have to watch, write some of these stories. <laughs> um, and so for me, it was a stark contrast. You know what I'm saying? Like to go from Essence and it's like everybody's a black woman. I'm, I'm, I was at Essence Fest in 2015. You know what I'm saying? I'm right. sitting there for Mary and, and, and Kendrick and, and Usher and, and Erica Badu and Evan Hart and all these people. And you're like surrounded by black excellence where everything around you is just like how I grew up in Detroit. Everything, a predominantly black city, everything around you affirms you because everybody looks like you. <laughs> They're not like you necessarily personality wise and that's fine, but you see yourself and they see you, right? When to go from those extreme to that extreme, everybody is like, we had like one white guy on staff at Essence. And that was only at the time because it was owned by Time Warner. <laughs> Um, everybody else was a black woman. So to go from that, and then I was at Shondaland, which is not too different. Shondaland.com has sort of created a space where they're like how Essence used to be before it got sold um, to Meredith and then Meredith sold it to the bro who makes the shea butter, Dennis Rich, Rich Dennis or whatever his name, Rich Dennis. 
that was toward the end of my part of this. And so I'm not going to throw shade, but that's, yeah. So Shondaland has picked up the baton and they're doing a lot more of that stuff, you know, like black women centered in- issues and black women celebrities and stuff like that, because those are the things that are important to Shonda. One of my last stories on the way out of Shondaland.com uh, was on the 40th anniversary of The Color Purple, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, when Ma Rainey's had premiered. So and and um, rest in peace, you know, um, uh, what's his name? The black Panther. We're both drawing a blank, which is terrible. <laughs> Gonna bug me. But he had just passed away. And so all the emphasis was on Chadwick Boseman. Yes, Chadwick Boseman. Yes. Was he going to get a posthumous Oscar, which unfortunately he didn't, but he did get, I think, everything else. He got the SAG, he got Golden Globe. So all the emphasis was on that. And it was awesome because it was like, you better get these stories in now. <laughs> Joy right. having Black editor, because that's about to change. And it hasn't, it hasn't been the culture shock that I thought it would be, but there are moments where I have to be like, excuse me. <laughs> This black thing, they're like, oh, okay. And I can proudly say I have brought a, a whole slate of black readership to this publication that did not exist before. Mm. We have unique users, and they can track what they are de- demographically. And and pardon my language, my black ass has brought a lot of black ass. <laughs> I take that seriously, and I'm proud of that. But on the other hand, you're like, but <laughs> it can't stop there. And these are things you consciously and 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 constantly have to think about when you are one of the few black people in a predominantly white space. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I listen, I went to a predominantly white school co- college, um, PWI. Right. And so I know what that's like, you know, the college paper where I wrote PWI, PWI staff at the college paper. Um, so we were the ones covering hip hop, my black editor and I, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's a value though, in having as, as a black writer, having a black editor, there are some things you just don't have to explain. You know, I think the, one of the hardest parts of my job, unfortunately, is explaining things um, and or or trying to justify something. Sometimes I don't have to. The numbers speak for themselves. But other times I do. And it's exhausting when it's not Black History Month. You know, and I've been told, you know, we value you beyond February. Thank you for that. But um, I think that you want to you want the lip service to go with the action. You want to feel valued. You want to feel seen. You want to be made to feel like what you're bringing to the table and what you know inherently or what you've grown up in is, uh, is just as significant and relevant to their experiences as white straight men. So I think that that's, that's will continue to be a challenge for me. Um, even if I, and I thought about it, strike out on my own and start my own publication, you're still going to have to interact with the world. Absolutely. And the world is not, doesn't always look like you. And even when you're dealing or say, trying to give a spotlight or um, a moment of shine to a Black celebrity, unfortunately, nine times out of 10, their their publicist doesn't look like them or you. (laughs) Very true. So there's that. And so it's just always trying to read the room, figure out what words to use, what language to, you know, tap into to convey that message and to be seen, but also to know your worth and your, your, your value, no matter what publication you are. Listen, I'm not going to bore you, Delisha, with the, the, the nitty gritty details, but being at Essence had its downsides too. Of course. Because I'm not a sorority girl or, you know what I'm saying? I Whatever. The, the point is, you always have something to overcome no matter where you go, if it's a predominantly Black publication or predominantly white. So it's just figuring out which battles you feel like dealing with. Yes. And the conversation I often have with Black professionals across a number of fields is, you know, especially with my girlfriends, people are always like, they get to Friday like, why am I so tired? I'm so tired. I'm so tired. That was me last night. Yeah. And I think we all work really hard, but 
as a black person in these environments, you're working hard on the job you get paid to do. And then there's all this other energy that's expended to educate, to be involved in diversity initiatives. But outside of that, it's the mental gymnastics. Mm. The point that you made, it's all the time, like filtering what you're saying, Mm. you know, through to say, okay, is this going to land the right way? What's the vocabulary? So there's this constant dialogue happening in your mind alongside the dialogue that's actually happening in real time. And the reality of it is it's exhausting. It is exhausting. You know, it's, we have a responsibility when we pioneer, like you said, someone has to do it, but the toll that it can take. And that's a, that's a hard thing to explain to people who don't look like you and who don't have to do it. That part. And I think that that's, I I pray that by the time my daughter is my age, (laughs) it won't be a conversation that she's having. That's just all I, that's all I can do. And, and I, and I pray that there won't, be a need for her to pioneer anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that there isn't value in that, right? To set the stage and to show and to, to lead by example and to do all this stuff. I don't believe in respectability politics, to be clear, but I think that there is a work acumen you have to come with no matter where you work. You have to bring it. And unfortunately or fortunately, people are looking at you and not always rooting for you. That's true. That's absolutely true. And sometimes it can be our own people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really sucks. Yes, which is um, a whole other conversation. We'll be here to tomorrow if we start talking about that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So listen, there there are several aspects of your career journey that I want to get into. Um, and we're going to end up splitting this into two parts. I'm but, cool with that. <laughs> but before we let you go on this part one, did I hear that you were a stand-up comedian? <laughs> yes, Because I feel I like it came through a little bit in this conversation already. Really? Yes. Um, but let's talk about a bit before you go <laughs> where stand-up comedy sort of fits into this journey and trajectory. I think it's, it's it goes back to the storytelling and just me wanting to, I'm just, I think I'm just naturally humorous. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very funny family. My parents were the funniest people I think I've ever met at the time. They probably maybe still are. Um, and it's just one of those things you kind of like know what, it's a survival mechanism. I, my whole, in fact, it's funny you said that our Black History Project, our package for this month, for this year, for 2022 at tvline.com is how Black people have used humor to survive. Mm. That is a gift. It's not always easy. It's not always nice, <laughs> but it's necessary. We have to laugh because we will go crazy. That's exactly If right. we do not find a way to release and to laugh, you can only go to church so much. There's only so much clubbing. <laughs> But if you can make yourself laugh and make your friends laugh and make your family laugh, you've you've already won half the battle. And so I think that that for me was like, you know, I was in Seattle at the time. It was my first job out of college. I was alone. My family was I didn't have anybody. Ever. Seattle is not the black friendliest town. I had to really go find I had to go and seek out black people, which was such a foreign concept to me. Like, what do you mean they're not right here? I got to go find you. They didn't always even do it. Well, I, you know, some say we're some black neighborhoods, but just not a lot because gentrification is what it is. But. It's sort of like, what do you do in those moments? What do you do with your free time? And it was like, it made me writing jokes and did it for the whole time I was there. So I was in Seattle for four years mm. and I loved it. It just was such a release and it was such a great way to get to know the city, know the people, to find my people, <laughs> to, to figure out what was the club, where, you know, every comedy club has like a, had a black night. <laughs> I did that. I did, uh, I did some corporate comedy gigs where you're like literally on a bus for like some startup or something and you're telling jokes for 
<laughs> 10 miles or whatever. It pays really well. Um, and it's just, just comical moments where you're like, that happened. I did that, you know? And, um, you know, I had, I, <laughs> Delisha, I dealt with a heckler at a, at, <laughs> at a family reunion who was just like, she ain't funny. She was drunk. She ain't funny, black woman. And I'm like, and you know, there's a moment <laughs> the angels on one shoulder and the devil's on the other shoulder. And I was like, and I just was like, okay, I'm going to ignore her. So I first heckle, I was like, it's okay. I know she's drunk. I'm going to keep going. Second time she was like, she's stealing my whole this. I was like, so I was like, oh, you got jokes. You want to come up here? With your, you know, again, sorry my language. She goes like, with your titties hanging on the table. <laughs> then I started swinging. I was like, swing low, sweet. And people were like, oh, like, but mind you, these are her relatives mm-hmm. laughing at her. And she just was like, <laughs> still see her jaw. She was like, <laughs> she, because she was, she had them on the table. I'm like, sis. And black like, audience, black audiences are a different kind of comedy audience. They make you work harder. And yes, I was like, they, the energy that is given off is like, m- make me chuckle, like move me. Make, I dare you to make me laugh. And I was doing okay till your girl just decided she was part of the act. And I was like, oh, wait, you want to be part of my act? When I said that, the room went insane. The comics were laughing. Like everybody was screaming. This woman is like losing her mind. She can't believe I insulted her like this. They get me off the stage. And the guy was like, I'm giving you money now and I'll walk you to the car because some of the family members are looking for you. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like, all right, I'm like, usher me out, move me in my car and I had to go. But it was like one of the best experiences of my life because I'm not that, I'm from Detroit. You're not going to just sit here and harass me on my job. <laughs> this, is my, this is my side hustle, but it's still, I'm getting paid. To do this. No one is paying you, ma'am. It was just wild. I could, I could still see her face. And it was crazy. I didn't, stay with stand-up comedy and I don't I don't I you know who's to say I could never never go back I could but I just am proud that I didn't I didn't back down I got out of there before I got beat down but <laughs> I am proud that I could I could say that I did that and survive so listen we know we have to let you get out of here so what we're gonna do is come back for a part two because I need to know what made you decide to go to Seattle um we need to yes. unpack more your career trajectory. And we do have to talk about the state of journalism today um, and, and those of you who've chosen to stay with it. So yeah. those who listen to the show often, they know that sometimes these two parters, we've had the entire conversation at once and we split it up after the fact. In this instance, we are doing a formal conclusion uh, for the part one and we'll come back to uh, the part two. So to those of you who are listening, 26ers, listen, you know the drill. If you're into this conversation, Come on back for the second half because it's going to happen. Uh, But for now, we're going to let you go. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to finishing uh, this dialogue. Me too. This is a blast. Thank you. No problem. So until then, folks, like, share and subscribe, comment. Make sure you send part one to those who you think might benefit from this. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 